a college student was, was asked to prepare a lesson in speech class. And so um, he spent about 15 minutes demonstrating the, the law of the pendulum. And he did this by um, taping a three-foot piece of string to a blackboard. This was a few years ago when they chalk and blackboards in classrooms. They don't have that anymore. Taped a three-foot piece of string to a blackboard with a weight on the bottom. He held it up to one side and marked the point from where he released it. It swung across and came back. And of course, the law of the pendulum states, because of friction and gravity, a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. So he demonstrates this for his class to prove his theory and says, class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Do you believe the law of the pendulum is true? Absolutely, yes, we believe. Professor, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Yes, of course we do. Professor, come on up here. So he calls the professor up on, up to the front. He has this all prearranged. He's got a table against the wall with a chair on top of the table. And he says, Professor, I want you to, to sit up on that chair. And he does. And the student then proceeds to, to lower from the ceiling a very crude but functional pendulum. It's 250 pounds of metal weights held by two 500-pound test parachute cords. So he lowers this pendulum, and he brings it over right in front of the professor's nose. And again, professor, you believe in the law of the pendulum, right? You know, because of friction and gravity, the pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. So your face is in no danger. You'll be okay. Professor, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? Beads of sweat begin to form on his forehead and upper lip. But he says, yes, I, I believe in the law of the pendulum. The student releases the pendulum. It swings across the room. It pauses for a minute, begins to arc its way back. The student said he never saw anybody move so fast in his life. <laughs> Off the chair, under the table. And then he asked the class, does the professor truly believe in the law of the pendulum? And they unanimously say, no, he does not. Our text this morning, I think, has something to say about faith versus a lack of faith, belief versus unbelief, acting on what you say you believe. We're going to take a look um, at Mark chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 6, a prophet without honor. I will read this for us from the NIV, the national version, Mark 6, 1 to 6, but please feel free to follow along as I read. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, a quick look at this text, and you can see this about faith versus a lack of faith, belief versus unbelief. Now, obviously, you and I, we, we, we live on this side of the res resurrection, so we would never be guilty of unbelief, right? 
I mean, we know Jesus is the Messiah. We know he is the chosen one. We know he is the son of God. Despite the fact that, yes, he was born into poverty, we know that Jesus is the son of God and we believe, period, right? But I would guess that many of you, just like me, would have to admit that there are times in our lives where we, in fact, are guilty of unbelief, guilty of a lack of faith. We like to make excuses, right? I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't know the Bible well enough, I'm, I'm not well-spoken, I'm not a people person. But in some way along the line, along our faith journey, we're all guilty of unbelief at some point. And, and the text is pretty clear this morning that God can't do much with us if we don't believe. So let me, ask, let me ask you this, where are you serving? Where is your place of ministry? Because everyone is called to serve in the church somewhere, right? So where is your place of ministry? Where are you serving in God's kingdom? Or are you guilty of unbelief in your service? When, when, I, when I was a, a college student, um, I was fortunate enough to be selected to, to go... Uh, to Volgograd, Russia for a short-term mission trip. It was the entire summer, 11 weeks. There were four of us from different Nazarene schools across the country. And in preparation for this um, summer, uh, planning a church in Volgograd, Russia, we, we were flown out to Phoenix, Arizona for a week of training and language study. And so while, while we were in Phoenix, um, they took us out to this high ropes course. And we literally drew straws to see which high ropes obstacle we, we would have to overcome. And so um, I, I draw the straw that uh, the obstacle was called the catwalk. And it's basically three 50-foot long telephone poles. One is straight up, one straight across 50 feet in the air, and the other one straight back down. And I have to scale up one, walk across the, the other, and scale back down the other side. Keep in mind, I am, I am deathly afraid of heights. I'm not, I'm not so much afraid of heights as much as I am afraid of falling from heights. That's really my fear. I think that might sting a little bit. So there are pegs along the vertical poles. So that's easy enough to climb up. And, and you're harnessed in, right? I mean, you can't die. You, you, you feel like you're going to die. You think you're going to die. But it is safe. You can't seriously injure yourself. But even still, it doesn't diminish the fear. I climb up these pegs. I get to the top, 50 feet in the air, and I have to step out, and this is, you know, I don't know, six, eight feet wide. I mean, six, eight inches wide, six, eight inches wide, and I got to walk across the other side. You can't sit and cinch your way across. You have to stand up and walk across. That's the obstacle, and I'm, I'm terrified. I get to the top, and I just freeze. I'm just frozen. I can't do anything. And I hear all the, all the college students, all my peers below saying, come on, Gary, you can do it. You can do it. We believe in you. Very encouraging. Thank you. Still terrified, still frozen up here. But there's one voice that I can distinguish among all the voices down below that I know I need to pay attention to. It's the voice of my instructor who literally has my life in his hands. I'm, I'm in a harness and there's ropes that he is controlling in case I fall. He can lower me to the, to the ground. But I hear his voice and, and I'll never forget what he says. He says, first of all, he says, Gary, don't look down. Great advice, great advice. Don't look down, stay focused on the point that you need to get to, 
and just keep moving forward and just trust me. Just trust me. I, I, I so needed to hear that voice. I was able to stand up and I started moving forward. I stayed focused on the end of that catwalk. I didn't look down and I just kept moving forward and I was able to, to reach my destination and here I am to live to tell about it. I didn't die on the catwalk. Sometimes I think we just need to listen to God's voice telling us to stay focused on where he's calling us and just trust him. So many times we know what he's saying. We know where he's leading us to. We're guilty of unbelief. We just don't trust him. We just don't listen to his voice. We need to do that. Jesus came to show that God didn't want men and women of supernatural, superhuman ability. He just wanted men and women who would believe, who would trust his voice, who would listen to him, who would believe in God's power for their lives. Scripture tells us that when you are weak, by believing in God and not yourself, then you are made strong. So, so let's take a closer look at this text this morning. This, this is really setting the stage for what is to follow in, in verses 7 to 13. And the important lesson to be learned here is a lesson in rejection. A lesson in rejection. Jesus is bringing his disciples with him back to his hometown of Nazareth to teach them a lesson in rejection. That's really what he's doing here. Jesus is rejected in his hometown and having his disciples witness this is necessary because they are about to go out to the surrounding towns and villages and preach the good news, to preach this gospel, and they too are going to be rejected. So Jesus is teaching them a lesson in rejection here. Jesus references this in verse 11. If you look ahead, um, he says, shake the dust off your feet as you leave as a testimony against them. In other words, uh, just as they didn't listen to me and didn't accept me, so too will they not listen to you and not accept you. So Jesus is teaching them, demonstrating for them a lesson in rejection. And, and, and what, Mark, what I think Mark is making clear here for us is that unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances. Unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances. Th th think about Mark's initial readers. Think about the first ones who would hear this gospel. Mark, Mark has written this account of Jesus, of all that he said and done, and think about the first ones who would hear this, this text read to them in the first century. Do you think this would be helpful to them? I think this would be hugely helpful to them because they, to hear this lesson in rejection from Jesus, they're living at the crossroads of their vibrant faith in this Jesus and the stark, harsh unbelief of the surrounding culture. This would, this would have been hugely helpful for the, the Mark's initial readers to hear this. That would have been hugely encouraging to them, I believe. So I, I, wanna, I wanna highlight or point out for us this morning three words, three words that I, that I want us to notice in this passage this morning. The first word is amazed in verse two, amazed. You know, it's interesting because in the community, Jesus was, was just known as the carpenter's son. He hadn't written any books, he didn't come from a rabbinical background. He didn't have any formal training. He did have a group of disciples following him, which would have been typical of a rabbi. Um, but the group that he'd assembled, well, um, they were an interesting bunch, right? I mean, they certainly didn't have the credentials.
have made you sit up and say, wow, what an impressive group of individuals that Jesus has put together. No, likely quite the opposite. Fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, this is really a ragtag group that shows up in town with Jesus here in Nazareth. And so while it's true that many who heard him speak were amazed, that's not necessarily to say that they were impressed. Because you can be amazed without being impressed. There are many works of art that amaze me, but they don't impress me. I mean, I can look at a beautiful piece of artwork and enjoy it for a moment or two, but it doesn't leave any lasting impression upon me. Now, if you continue on in verse 2, the amazed in the crowd begin to ask a few questions. Where did he come up with this stuff? Where does this wisdom come from? How is it that he does these miracles? For these folks in Nazareth, Jesus is just a local boy. He's just a local boy. He's just one of the guys. He's nobody special. You know, I coach, coach Little League Baseball here in town. And um, there, there, are, there are nine uh, Little League teams um, in our town. And uh, I think, I did the math on this last night, I think seven of the nine coaches are guys that grew up here in Manchester, and I think all of them probably played Little League Baseball here in Manchester. I did not. I grew up in Pennsylvania. And so there's, there's this one kid on, on this one team who's just a phenomenal talent, and his dad is, some of you will recognize his name, his dad is Bill Massey, played for the Yankees. You know, I, I, I see Bill Massey, and I'm just impressed and amazed. I mean, the Bill Massey was 1987 National College Baseball Player of the Year, went to Georgia Tech. 1988 wins a gold medal for the USA Olympic baseball team. Drafted by the New York Yankees. Has a phenomenal career, mostly in AAA because the years that he was with the Yankees, all three of their outfielders were, were all-star outfielders, so he never quite broke in with the Yankees. Any other club, he probably would have been you know, a regular starter in the major leagues. Um, born and raised right here in Manchester. And the first game we play, his kid plays for Dairy Queen. And, and we, I coach my son plays for Tweedy. And, and uh, every time Dairy Queen wins, Dairy Queen gives them free ice cream. I'm like, man, why couldn't be on Dairy Queen? We're on Tweedy Dental. We don't, we don't get free cleanings every time we win a game. <laughs> Something's wrong with this picture. But uh, after our first game this year, we played Dairy Queen the very first game. And um, both, we lost, Dairy Queen won. But both teams end up going to Dairy Queen. Well, Bill Massey comes up to me. Hey, coach, good job. Well, first of all, he, said, he comes up to me and says, hey, Bill Massey. Hi, Bill. Gary Light. Nice to meet you. Hey, great job, coach. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. That's what I say. In my mind, I'm thinking, you're Bill Massey. You don't need to tell me who you are. Um, I am a, 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 amazed and impressed by Bill Massey. Throughout the season, all the other coaches on Little League, hey, Billy, how you doing? Hey, Billy. They all call him Billy. He's just one of the guys. He's just the local boy who grew up here. He's, he's, he's nobody special to them. Hey, Billy, how you doing? You know, they, they grew up together. They played Little League Baseball together. They hung out at the mall together. Billy Massey, he's, he's just one of the guys. For me, I'm just like, oh, man, Bill Massey, New York Yankees. For the rest of the coaches in the league, it's just Billy. He's just one of the guys. Jesus is just the local boy in Nazareth. There's nothing special about him. It's, it's just Jesus. You're, you're, you know, we, we know your brothers and your sisters. We, we know your family. He's just a local boy. Nothing special. These are people who grew up with Jesus. They played with him. 
They played Little League Baseball with him. They hung out at the mall with him. It's, it's just Jesus. He's just one of the guys. There was nothing about him or his family that would have suggested anything other than he's just completely ordinary. Just completely ordinary. Nothing special. Just one of the guys. And their famil- familiarity with Jesus made it harder, not easier, for them to accept him and his authority, to, to truly believe him. It's really quite staggering when you think about it. Jesus acknowledges this in verse four. Only in his hometown is a prophet without honor, Jesus says. So the hometown crowd is amazed at Jesus, but their familiarity with him as an ordinary, everyday Galilean carpenter keeps them from truly believing in him. So the first word is amazed. Second word I want to highlight is offended. Offended. They took offense at him is what we read at the end of verse 3. The questions are really meant as disparaging comments directed at Jesus. Isn't this Mary's son? That question alone would have been so insulting. In, In Jewish culture, men were referred to as sons of their fathers, never sons of their mothers. That was a disparaging comment. And even if it's the case that that Joseph Joseph has already died and Mary is a widow at this point, it's still insulting because even in the case of a widow in Jewish culture, men would still be referred to as he's the son of Joseph, would not be referred to as the son of Mary. An insulting, disparaging comment directed at Jesus. That's just Mary's son. He's just the carpenter. Uh, He's the brother of James and Judas and the others. They're dismissing him. They're dismissing him. And that familiarity is the basis for their rejection. Because he's just one of them. He's just a local boy. Think about this. Jesus has come in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. He proceeds to cast out demons. He stills the wind and the waves. He heals the lepers. He cures the blindness. He triumphs over death. I mean, this is a pretty dramatic display, wouldn't you say? And then he shows up in his hometown of Nazareth, and there, he can't do anything. He can't do anything. He's able to triumph over death and the demons but in his own hometown, he is unable to, tr- to triumph over the unbelief of his own brothers and sisters. It's amazing. Now, that would really be troubling <laughs> if you didn't have an Old Testament, right? Because we know what the Old Testament says about the one who would come as the prophet of God. He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and we esteemed him not. Or as John puts it in his prologue, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So the people are amazed and offended. Who does he think he is? Coming back here and speaking in this way as if he has some kind of authority. He's just one of us. He's nobody special. So amazed and offended, and that brings us to our third word this morning, and that word is deprived. Deprived. Now, that word might not jump, out to, jump right out to you, but let me explain it a bit. Clearly, the news of the miracles of Jesus had reached his hometown, and again, that's the backdrop against which he shows up to speak in the synagogue. 
Verse 5 is a very interesting verse, isn't it? Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Jesus is doing these dramatic miracles all over the place. Incredible, amazing. And he comes back to his own hometown of Nazareth and can barely do anything at all. Hence the word deprived. On account of their unbelief, his family and his hometown were deprived of signs and wonders. On account of their unbelief, they were deprived. In the same way that on account of your unbelief, many of you are deprived. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Sunday after Sunday, Christians sit in worship services hearing the word of God preached and would admit to being amazed. And many of those would be honest enough to say that they are offended. And if they are really honest, they would have to say that they are deprived. Deprived of any living, genuine faith in Jesus at all. And that's what Mark's describing for us here. It's exactly what Mark is describing. Mark isn't drawing attention to the the, the limits of Jesus' power as if somehow um, being back home in his his hometown of Nazareth, um, he doesn't have any power or ability because it's some kind of geographical issue. (laughs) No, this was all about the people's unbelief. This was all about the people's lack of faith. The hardness of their hearts and their rejection of Jesus prevented the healing ministry of Jesus from being showered upon them. It prevented them from enjoying all the benefits of rule right there in their own town. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because the same is true when it it comes to the issue of the forgiveness of sins. Right, The hardness of a person's heart, the rejection of Jesus' ministry is such that people will not find forgiveness of sins. And Jesus does not force himself on a hostile and a skeptical audience. He wouldn't do that. He's the perfect gentleman. He's not going to force himself on anybody. He's not in town to do tricks. <laughs> he, he, he's not in town to impress people by, by putting on some kind of a show. He possesses all of this power, incredible supernatural power, but he doesn't work in such a way as to intrigue or entice some kind of superficial response on the part of those who are hostile and skeptical towards him. He won't do it. They will not listen to his words, and therefore they will not see the wonder of his works. When Mark says he could do, he could not do any miracles, he's not saying that it was physically impossible for Jesus to do so. No, of course not. But for Jesus to do so, it would have been inconsistent. It would have been inconsistent. I love how uh, one commentator puts it, and I quote, he writes, where the kingdom of God is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to bestow upon these unwilling subjects all of the benefits and blessings of his kingly rule. I love that. 
you will never come to saving faith in Jesus from the vantage point of detached observation. You'll never come to saving faith in Jesus from the vantage point of detached observation. And as that one commentator continues, the king does not manifest himself to the hostile or the skeptical. Won't do it. So as we come to the end of this text, we we read in verse six that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed at their lack of faith. Have you ever thought about what would amaze Jesus? What, what would Jesus be amazed by? I mean, it's kind of like asking the question, what, what do you buy the guy for Christmas who has everything? Well, he doesn't need anything. What, what, what would he like? What would he want? What would amaze Jesus? What would Jesus be amazed by? Well, Scripture actually answers that question for us. Kids, you remember one thing that Jesus is amazed by? Well, obviously one of them is right here in Mark 6. He's amazed at the lack of faith on account of the people. But as I mentioned in the, in the children's message, in Luke 7, Jesus is amazed by the faith of the centurion. You, you don't even need to come to my house, Jesus. Just say the word from where you are, and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this even in the whole of Israel. Jesus is amazed in that instance. Jesus is amazed at the presence of faith. And here in our text in Mark 6, Jesus is amazed at the absence of faith. Jesus is simply amazed at their lack of faith. He'd grown up before them. He lived among them. He's now returned to them and had preached for them. They had benefits that other people didn't have, right? Access, they had insight, they had opportunities because they lived in Nazareth. And I think there's a, there's a, a point of immediate application right here. Those of you who, who, who've been raised in the church, those of you who've grown up in the church, uh, coming to church your whole life, um, e- even knowing the freedom of religion that we've had in this country, over the years, Th- those of us who've responded to the urgings, family and friends to receive the good news of Jesus, those of us who come to church Sunday after Sunday, who've been amazed and offended and yet are still deprived. It, it, it's, it's amazing to me that I, I'm guessing tens of thousands, I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians in this country go to church every Sunday and listen and learn and just walk away and there's no change and they do it week after week month after month maybe year after year I think the term is sitting on the fence maybe it's time to move off the fence Why would someone continue to sit on the fence week after week, month after month, maybe year after year, and not get serious about faith in Christ? Why would somebody do that? I wonder if it's because you think your sin is too great. Maybe you've made an absolute mess of your life 
you've completely blown it. Maybe you've done something awful or terrible and you don't think you deserve to be forgiven. And somehow you've gotten the impression that you are beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. If that's you this morning, let me tell you something. Your unfitness is your fitness. Your unfitness is your fitness. You don't go to the doctor when you're well. You go, go to the doctor when you're sick. It's your sickness that provides the basis for, for your healing. Your unfitness is your fitness. That's all of us. Some of you might actually believe that you're excluded from this deal. Some of you might actually think that you, you don't belong. You're not, you're not a part of the family. I'm, I'm just not supposed to be in the group. I, I just don't belong. If that's you this morning, if you resonate with that thought, let me assure you that that is nonsense. Just open your Bible and you'll see that Jesus says again and again that whoever comes to him, he will never cast away. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast away. You say, you know what, there's just nothing good in me. There, there's, there's nothing good about me. And I say to you, Jesus has all the goodness that you need. And he says, just come as you are. Just come as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to have it all together. None of us do, by the way. Just come as you are. Jesus has all the goodness that you need. Rely upon him. Trust in his mercy, and if and when you do, you will discover the wonder of his redeeming love. I want to close this morning um, by reading from a sermon that is 148 years old. This is a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this very text of Mark 6, and believe me, Mark, uh, Charles Spurgeon can do a lot better with this text than I can. Charles Spurgeon preached this message on Mark 6 in London on June 12, 1870. Still incredibly relevant today in my opinion. This is what he preached on that Sunday morning and I quote, There are some of you who know that Christ is God. You know he is able to save from sin. You know he is able to save you. And yet you are unsaved. And I marvel at your unbelief, he writes, he says. Because you confess that it leaves you in a state of ruin and will land you in a state of everlasting confusion. You know you are filthy and that the fountain is open. Why then don't you wash? You know Christ will save you if you trust him. You know he is worthy of your trust. So why will you not trust him? In the name of everything that is reasonable, why not trust him? Do you hear the urgency in those words? In the name of everything that is reasonable, why not trust him? Get off the fence. Get in and get serious and believe in Christ. Give your life to him. Aaron's going to sing a song for us just to give us a, a, a moment to respond. As, as 
Tanya and Aaron sing this song. Um, the altar is open. Some of you I know need to come and pray. I think I need to <laughs> come and pray. We need to respond to this message. So as they sing, would you, would you pray? Come and, and pray if you need to. Um, but some of us need to move off the fence. He came to his own town and his own would not receive him. But to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become sons and daughters of God. And he wants to give you that power today as well. If you come and believe. Father, thank you for your faithful presence here by your spirit. God, thank you for these, my friends, who've responded, who desire to say, I believe. Father, for all of us in this room, help us to move to that place where our belief, where our faith and trust is fully, completely, and confidently in you and you alone so we can experience the wonders, the works, the power of your spirit within our lives so we can live fully and faithfully for you, bringing honor and glory to you in all that we see and all that we do. Father, help us now. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.